Won't you come and tell me when the music ends, when I can leap away and face one god or a thousand, or nothing at all into this blessed bliss of oblivion, when I can prize open this box and release cruel and bitter fury at all the mad fools crowding the door in panicked flight? Watch me and watch me with eyes wide and shocked, with disbelief, with horror, with indignant umbrage to upbraid, and the shouted neighs are like drumbeats announcing a truth. The music ends, my friends, my vile, despicable friends, and see me, see me slam the door, slam it hard in all your faces. Hello, and welcome to Legendarium Green Team's Malazan series, and uh, the second episode of Toll the Hounds, the best book. Uh, I am Huron Fan, and I'm joined today by Janath as a boy. Hello! And Ashaman. Hi. And Befuddled Panda. Hello, hello. Today we're covering uh, book two of Told the Hounds, or chapters seven through twelve, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Any, uh, anyone have anything to announce or say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving the podcast, that's it. It's, this is my last episode. I've decided I'm done with Malazan. I've been convinced that it's a bad series. Um, convinced by whom? <laughs> I plead the fifth. Oh, I got a few things to say. Um, yeah. I just finished the spear that the spear, spear cuts, cuts through, through water. water. Yeah. Yes. It's fantastic. Like all of our readers or all of our listeners should read it because it's, it's just beautiful. I get the feeling that I should read it. I think you should. I mean, I haven't read it, but after Told the Hounds. I'm I'm going into that book. Um, I, I watched like 60 movies this year. I'm on just weird movie binge. Binge. And I watched uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the uh, coward Robert Ford. It was incredible. Huh. That was it. <clears throat> Are you counting down the days, the hours, Kieran, until baby arrives? Uh, there's nothing to count down. I don't know what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have but, your uh, like expected due date. Yeah, yeah, um, kind of. Uh, she's finally getting to that miserable phase where she's just tired of it and saying, "Yeah, oh, I think uh, it's coming soon." Has she been enjoying being pregnant? Well, you know, you hear stories about uh, just what what do they have the uh, what are those bridezillas? You hear about like uh, uh-huh. women who are just terrible when they're pregnant. They complain of everything. They want things, and she's been fantastic. Like. Like when I, when I hear other people complain about their pregnant wives or like women even saying I did this when I was pregnant, I was like, but yeah. yeah, she's been she's been great. I mean, uh, the impression I get from your wife is that she's just amazing all the time, right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't have. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Why is she with no you? Complaints. I'm sorry. I don't know. Like, just like the luckiest guy ever, right? Um. So yeah, mm-hmm. finally she's uh, she's just getting miserable, and I'm just mm-hmm. trying to make her feel as good as possible. Yeah. Yeah, she's almost there. Almost there to the finish line. Shall we start the episode? Let's start. Okay. Uh, chapter 7. Snell gives Harlow a bonk. Mapo hires the Trigal Trade Guild, who picks up a, who pick up a few new employees. Stani and Gruntle bid each other a tearful goodbye. Marilio and Aralic come to grips with their new places in the world. Dwicker and Fisher make a deal to tell the story of the Chain of Dogs. Scorch, Leff, and Torvald consult with Krupp about finishing their list. The vets recover from their coral milk. Fuck Snell. <laughs> that um, kid, man. Such a psychopath. He needs professional help. And probably yes. a lot of it. Yeah. Yes. He, 
Yeah, we could talk about this later. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think we should talk later, maybe in a few chapters, about if Snell gets professional help, if he can actually get any better. Because <laughs> mm. like this is the most sociopathic POV I think we've had in the series. Yeah, I, I don't. The guy in Reaper's Gale is, I think, on par at least, right? And he's grown. Okay. Up. The snot guy. What, what was he like as a kid, though? Maybe he grew into being just a terrible. Yeah, maybe. Oh no, no, you're thinking of a uh, no. Uh, who was what was his name? He was a uh, he was in the government and like he just raped people. Like he met the guy oh. in the corridor and he's like, oh, I could have raped that guy. Yeah, yeah, he killed troll <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's like there's a there's a tice here. I'm just kind of guessing. His name starts with an S. Back. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like he Snell could be his son. I think. I think Snell's worse, actually. Think so. Yeah, I mean, Snell does objectively less bad things, I think. Well, um, he hasn't has as many yeah, years he, he, to he do the, them. He doesn't have the opportunity. But, like, what, what redeeming quality did the what's-his-face in Reapers get? <laughs> I don't think he had any, right? Like, ze- like actually zero. Uh, yeah. It, I mean, he was, they're, they're he was kind of dense. He was just kind of yeah. dense and not very... He, he just didn't really have much capacity to, like be empathetic mm-hmm. and i and think like, snell though snell's mm-hmm. like i know how these people are feeling and i'm gonna exploit that and uh yeah do you have thoughts about Dulker in this section i mean yes i do um i mean so like in toll the hounds we're at a part in the series where you know, so much has happened. We've seen, we've been with so many different characters and relationships, and we've been able to follow them from, you know, like beginning, quote unquote, beginning to end of relationships. Um, and we're seeing the aftermath. And we, we've seen some of this in like um, Reaper's Gale as well. Um, but like here, we're back with, Duiker and you know the chain of dogs was such a massive like emotional journey for us as the readers and for the characters um and it's like how do you recover from that and so I really I am sympathetic with Duiker and like last time in our last episode we also talked about like but he was saved for this one particular job which is to tell the story um, of the people um, in the chain of dogs, and he's in this funk, and I'm like, I get it, I get both sides, I get all these like different sides of it. Um, if I were in his shoes, I would struggle a lot. Like, why me? Why am I the one who survives and has to live with these memories, and needs to have like this quote unquote burden, right? Um, I just want I just want it to be over. But if I end it, then I'm gonna feel. I mean, it's if he ends it, it's really like doing his friends a huge disservice, right? So he's caught in this like really tough place, and that interaction with Fisher was so well done. I love that scene and the way that Fisher just comes. He recognizes like you you need somebody to help you get through this like you can't do this on your own 
and nobody else was really like understanding of that. Um, at least not that was shown to us. And Fisher realizing and recognizing that this man has a story that needs to be told, but he is too close to the story. He's too close to the people. And he needs somebody to help him, like, basically kind of like interview him in a way to like draw out the details of the story so that he has somebody to tell it to. And he's not just like telling it to himself because when he's writing it down, he's really just like having a conversation with himself. So, yeah. It's me clapping. Uh, there perfectly is, put. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I, I would I would also add that there is a lot of people like this in, in this story. and. It seems like a yeah. lot of the time what, what needs to happen to these Molasin characters is just like someone needs to sit them down and just like have mm-hmm. a really frank conversation with them. Because there a lot of the time characters notice that other characters are really struggling and then just kind of like leave them to it because they don't right. feel like they can help them, right? <laughs> and yeah. like this is happening to like Enda Salon, this is happening to Seardome, and this is happening to Spinnock. Um this oh, is happening to like all of the Tyst that yeah, Stani. Absolutely. Like and like if these people would just talk to each other. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's like almost like a romance. <laughs> if, just, <laughs> if just these goddamn people would talk to each other, it would be so much easier. But that's not how humans work sometimes, right? Yeah. I'd like to point out that uh, that section to me was just screaming meta, meta, meta. This it is why writers write. Yep. Um, um, no, yeah, that's kind of why I brought it up, honestly, though. I did, uh, I, I did uh, also pick up on the stuff that Panda was talking about. Um, this was the moment, the, this moment between him and Fisher, I, it, it was setting off all the meta flags for me in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I was like, oh my God, he's going to write Dead House Gates. And then, <laughs> um, and then later, Duiker is with Solara and he displays knowledge of the events of Gardens of the Moon that he's picked up from talking to people around Mm-hmm. rules bar into Rujistan or listening to them probably more so than talking right because he's depressed uh and and i think at one point something comes up from memories of ice and then they sit down at the bar and she starts telling him stuff from uh the house of chains and the bone hunters and i was like oh my god Dooker and fisher are gonna write the book of the fallen together <laughs> and and like they'll sit down to start writing the that the chain of dog stuff and it'll expand out to Dead House Gates and then it'll be like, no, but you need more context for this and go back and write Gardens of the Moon and then go forward and like just keep going with the series. And like I was like, oh my god, the author of the series is deciding to write the Book of the Fallen from within the Book of the Fallen, and that's kind of what I got out of that that whole yeah. interaction. Um, yeah. Uh how great was the name drop? That was it's awesome. Like you, you you go through all of this. You, you, we've heard about Fisher. Like throughout the entirety, I think he's in literally every single book as an epigraph of some sort. And then finally, you go through this amazing conversation between the two of them, and he's like, "Call me Fisher." Oh, oh. <laughs> no, call me Ishmael. <laughs> I, the first time I read this, I was I was like skipping poems and stuff left and right, except for when they were short or informative. Uh, mm-hmm. So I actually, I just I just like, oh, Fisher. I, I guess new character. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and to me it was like oh it's like it's it's like you're in you know in the society at the time that homer is right is writing and performing his epic poems and you run into homer in a bar like like that's <laughs> that was me like reading this stuff for the first time and ash is just like oh it's a new character 
Yeah. I mean, we are doing a much deeper reading than any person would probably usually read these things. So, <laughs> um, Going back to all the traumatic people, the people with trauma, like the part with Stani and how Marilio comes to her and also recognizes her as, okay, this is a broken person that just needs to process and heal. And this is what I can do for her. I can listen, right? Um, and that was such a contrast to, like, Gruntle, who is also dealing with trauma. And he goes to Stani hoping that she could be the one to help him, um, you know, pull back and not join the the Trigel Guild. Um, but she wasn't able to do that. Because she herself was, like, she was in the same kind of spot that he was, even though they were dealing with pretty different trauma. So, yeah. Yeah, and she she even calls him out on, like, what he's doing. Like, he this is a death wish. But then she just kind of, like, spits on her. like, fine, go away. I don't care. Because she's, like, stunning. She's afraid <laughs> of care. She's, a, exactly. And, like, clearly she was damaged even before memories of ice because she acted like this during <laughs> she acted like this during memories of ice as well um was a fart that was my cat playing with the door <laughs> yeah sure sure it was <laughs> impressive otherwise <laughs> you want to talk about the trigal trade guild because i love that section this in this chapter yeah uh i just their their banter seemed very malazan like mm-hmm and I loved uh, the so first we see the Trigal Trade Guild and then we follow Mapo going to the Trigal Trade Guild and we have this nice little I guess fan service moment where he's like the last time I saw this carriage was in Tremolor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we get the bull, the two bull brothers, <laughs> yep. uh, chasing Both after a woman, which is just comedy, comedy gold. Yeah, high yeah. marshals of the mod regulars. Come on, <laughs> give them the respect they deserve. Well, I think if I said Bull Brothers, it implies that they're you know higher marshals of the mod regulars, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is like a completely random tangent, but it is related to something that they were talking about. So they were talking about, I guess, like he was one of them was like talking about getting a papaya out of his ass or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. That was just like, that has to be gameplay, right? Like, <laughs> the way that the banter was and how, like, the things that they were saying. Um, but then that also reminded me, and this is like, this is just how my brain works. It's so random. Um, papaya milk. When I was growing up, I was told that papaya milk was something that women should, especially, like, teenage girls should consume because it would help their boobs grow bigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, this young panda uh... was just like downing a shot of it every time you <laughs> had any meal. I mean, papaya milk is, is delicious. Don't get me wrong. I never had it's it. Just, it's, I didn't it's even know very, papaya was milk. It's a very Eastern Asian thing. No, it's you, you make mix papaya with milk to make papaya milk. Ah, I see. Yeah. But anyway. So that's why my boobs got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> the papaya. 
I this book, like as I guess one of its main themes is just women dominating men in relationships. <laughs> I guess. Like, <laughs> like it seems to me <laughs> that a lot of these, like, okay, not necessarily dominant, but in Toll the Hounds so far, all of the relationships have been very female-led, right? And we see this... Um, Torvald. Tor- Torvald, we see... I love their relationship. Um, Iskarol and Mogara, although that one's a bit hard to... Torvald twice. Um, there's the the Bull Brothers and the, the woman that they're chasing. I don't remember her name. Precious Thimble, is it? Yeah. Um, there's Spinnock and the High Priestesses, both of them. Um, I'm sure there's more than forgetting. Oh, Torvald and um, the woman he has sex with. Yeah, that's why I said Torvald twice. Oh, okay, yes, yes, um, Torvald twice. Yes, absolutely. Um, but actually, with Endast, that I would say that he's the he's the one in the uh, uh, dominating there, or Endest? at least like, yeah, yeah like because she's the one that wants him to Spinnick? be more attached, right? I think you're thinking of Spinnick. Oh, wait, what? Yeah. Hold on. I don't know if I said Endest or not, but Endest... You said, not, you said Endest, but okay. but the guy with the priest... corrected me. Yeah. It was Spinnick? Yeah. Um, I get them confused, because... Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, to, to that, I would just say, like, um, in, in the verbal confrontations between Spinnock and the High Priestess of the Redeemer, it, it to me... The Redeemer! Like oh, that Priestess! Yeah. Okay. And, and I thought then, you were talking about the other Priestess. Yeah, so the one that Spinnock really wants is the, the Redeemer one. <laughs> right, um, right, 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 right. But Sorry. But the, the, one, the one he... Right, the, okay. The one from it. Mother Dark, she also seems to have, like, the conversational edge over him, to, to me, even though it's clear that she's on the hook for him. Right. Mm. Do you think this is, like... I mean... Is this a response by Erickson about how he can't write women? I don't know. Does do people say that? <laughs> I think I think it's a way for him to have a book where women have the the power in mm. the relationship. Um, maybe as a response to previous books when I mean, um, let's look at Chalice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chalice does not have the power in a relationship, unfortunately. But she's trying to. She's trying. She yeah, is trying absolutely. to. Um, but it, it's it definitely adds a lot more nuance to the relationships between men and women that have heretofore existed in the series. I, I would say there's there's been a there's been a few as the series has gone on that are led by women as well. Yeah, like, within the Bridge Burners, mm-hmm. uh, I forget the couple's name now. Uh, Hedge and uh, Dadaron. Yeah, <laughs> three different there. Take your, <laughs> <pick> your poison. <laughs> yeah, um, and that woman uh, from the Bargast. Every relationship she had, she was dominant in. Hatan. So me- really, just memories of ice. Honestly, so memories of ice, and then this is kind of a sequel to Memories of Ice. So it picks it back up, I guess. I mean, Crocus has always been an Absolar's hook, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. And before that, on ch- chalices. Yep. Yeah, there, it's it's very rare for a relationship in this series to actually have the man be dominant and be healthy. It seems I, I can't really think of any. <laughs> Maybe like Troll's parents. Are there really that many healthy relationships? I think we talked about this before. There aren't. 
Yeah, yeah there are not. But when yeah. there are, it seems like the women are taking charge. Who was who 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 wore the pants? Uh, who wore the pants in um uh, the uh, what's her name? The girl from Seven Cities and the uh, Claw. I can't. Uh, oh, Pearl, Pearl and Lestara. Yeah, uh, I would say Lestara. <laughs> Absolutely. So really, it's just the whole series, honestly, not just this book. Not that <laughs> or, they have a very healthy relationship. I think it's no, this book not. is it's interesting watching all of these plot lines that were fairly separate in the previous books, and now they're like converging into one book, which would make sense because we're getting towards the end of the series, and he better bring them together. <laughs> he brings a lot of them together, absolutely. Not all of them. Not all of them, but a lot. And some will be read together in the novels of the Wazen Empire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this book, if you don't read uh, Orb Scepter Throne, this book will have the most unresolved plot lines for you by the oh, end. Great. Because, because like a good quarter to maybe a third of them are in are finished in Orb Scepter Throne. I disagree. You disagree? I think th- we can talk about s- it at the end. <laughs> there are small hints to things that occur. I, I would not call them starting anything. It's more like a hey, here's a wink to the reader who also read Orbs of the Throne. Well, no, Orbs of the Throne's after this. It's a sequel. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's well, that's not a wink. It's a. I mean, there are there are. You could say the same that... for either book, though. No, because yes, like. Orb Scepter Throne directly continues a plotline that runs through this entire book and ends not unresolved. Okay. This sounds like it a good one. topic for the spoiler episode. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, I do want to go back to Stani for a moment. Um, we did get a question from Sun Gamer. Um, like, how do we think the portrayal of Stani as a rape survivor? Um like do we think what do we think about it um i think that i mean i have never personally gone through rape so this is only from like me reading as an outsider and observing but i think from what erickson put in and it's it's actually not a ton right it's it's actually very percentage wise very very small percentage of what we read um I thought it was very effective the way that he portrayed how this character, um, like what this character is feeling, what this character is, um, like how they're processing or not processing what they went through. And just the, the thing, the scene, I guess the imagery of when he describes her looking at the face of Harlow and just seeing the rapist. And, and like, this isn't just like, you know, even quote unquote, like, I don't want to say normal rape, but it's like, it's even worse because of the circumstances that they were going through in Memories of Ice. Um, And her, to me, how I read it was like, this is a character that is very conflicted because Harlow is her child. It's as much part of her as it is, as he is like a part of the person who violated her. And she probably really wants to love this child and wants to care for him. But 
in doing so, that really conflicts with her hatred for the person who violated her. And that violence is not something that she is ready to, like, accept or heal from, you know. And so I I think it was very effective by using Little Harlow to portray and help the reader understand, like, what Stani is going through. Yeah, I... Um, I haven't gone through rape either or sexual violence of any kind, fortunately, but I have known and been very close to people who have, and it feels real, (laughs) feels really real, Um, which I think is consistent throughout the series. Honestly, Um, the way that like she's, she is obviously damaged, but she's functional for the most part. She like, she can do things in her life. Um, And yet the way that like, this this is healed over in an unhealthy way, like a broken bone that hasn't been set properly. Um, yeah, that feels that feels very true to life to me. Yeah. Um, to lighten the mood, I <laughs> enjoyed Krupp and Torvald Noam sections, <laughs> and it's not uh, in the subtext that Krupp not so uh, secretly hinted uh, the people who Scorch and Left were hunting after. <laughs> to leave town when they did. Yeah. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> uh, it's also nice to have just like someone who's a little bit of an intellectual peer to Krupp, even though Torvald obviously isn't. But like Krupp is like playing with babies most of the time. <laughs> He's like, oh, does uh, does Torvald look uh, tired? Maybe from... <laughs> from... <laughs> hmm, funny how you managed to come up with all that money. Uh, and also, the guy that needed the money was robbed just last night. Hmm. It all goes right over Scorch and Love's head. God, they're so mm-hmm. stupid. They're... I honestly don't really know what the purpose of those two characters are, other than maybe to provide comedic relief. I think that's uh, it. But, I mean, I I could leave them. Like, if they weren't in the book, I'd be fine with it. They provide comic relief. They're a source of tension between Torvald and his wife. They provide a, another set of eyes in the as POV section for the Madrum Badrun and uh, <laughs> uh, the others with less memorable names. Uh, uh, yeah. The most important subplot to this book. Yeah, so um, important. And they... Um, the stuff with them and Krupp kind of like gives Steve a chance to like muse on political economy more. I guess. Uh, yeah. And they're really funny. And they they actually have real growth, even just in this book. I, I've yet to really see the growth part. I, I <laughs> really? think I think they could be safely edited out of this book. Not not that I don't get anything from their chapters or sections, but like this is a really big book. Yes. So uh, aside okay. But if you're going to start doing that, aside from the fact that he provides antagonism for the bridge burners, what is the purpose of Humble Measure in this book? Um, I don't know. Humble Measure is in this book a lot less than Scorch and Left. <laughs> but okay. um, yeah, like uh, that's true. Humble Measure c- could maybe be cut as well. <laughs> <laughs> but like he doesn't spend a lot of time on Humble Measure. He spends quite a bit of time on Scorch and Left. I guess he spends more time on like the consequences of Humble Measure's actions than he does on yeah. Humble Measure himself. But then like 
I'm also like not really clear like why he's doing the things he's doing fully, I guess. Like just because he wants revenge on the molassens. Is that it? Yeah, that's I think good. that's I think that's it. Because <laughs> of the situation he went through in the city, right? Like that's a that's a pretty traumatic event. And yeah, he humble measure is the one that is hiring all the assassins to kill the Malazan soldiers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. But like, why isn't he like having them take out the embassy? Why? He why he, is he like, targeting the bridge burners? He, he goes through this. He he thinks that these veterans have been sent in like in a clandestine way to start infiltrating the city and taking it down from within. So he's he's nipping it in the bud. I mean, which so. is what the Malazan Empire does do. Mm-hmm. It's just that in this case, he's wrong. He's yeah. wrong. And it is literally what they were doing in Gardens of the Moon, right? <laughs> yeah. Like literally these exact people. That's <laughs> 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 true. That's fair. I do think that Steve missed out on an opportunity to introduce a character. I mean, I'm guessing this character doesn't exist by now. We haven't met them, but I mean, you come up with House of Nom, and yet you don't introduce a character named Om. Om nom. Om nom. <laughs> Come on. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think if he doesn't introduce a character named Omnom at some point in the Lazen, then he deserves round sound and round criticism. <laughs> well, that's like kind of knocks it down a notch. Or or nom nom. I mean that mm. would work too. Yeah. Nom nom. Nom nom. <laughs> um, I do have a question. And I I just just, just, just a clarifying question. Gorlas? Gorlas, whatever Chalice's. I said Gorlas Viticus. Okay, Chalice's husband. He's gay, right? Seems like it. I think he's either gay or asexual. Honestly, I was leaning towards asexual. Oh, okay. His only mistress is power. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get the impression he was gay. Okay. I think asexual makes. He's not interested in Chalice sexually. Yeah. Well, but it, it's not like he was also interested in other women sexually. Because yeah, she specifically said his predilection. And I was like, okay, that means more than just he's not interested in her personally. Yeah, I honestly, that might imply that he, he is interested in other, maybe children. Oh. All right, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised for Gorlis. Um, I, I think this is a very wholesome post-orgy scene that we have with the veterans, right? <laughs> Was that this chapter? That was this chapter, and, and the oh, the beautiful. Um, I guess it's dramatic irony. I don't know if anyone actually knows what dramatic irony is, but uh, of Antsy getting what he wants, but never being able to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, this just makes me even more upset about what happens later in the book. Right. Oh, yeah. <sighs> um. Uh, Chapter I got a couple things to say. First of all, um, in this entire book, in the Darugistan chapters, it usually opens and ends with a corrupt, omniscient narrator mm-hmm. uh, speaking in very poetical terms, I suppose. Uh, I've, I highlighted every single version, and I wrote in my notes, I love these parts, and that, I, that's all I want to say. They're, they're beautiful, and I could reread them. I, I, I skimmed will... those. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it's, what is wrong with you? It's really what easy. What did you skim? Like, <laughs> narrations. 
Oh my god, that's like the best part. Some of the best parts of the whole series. I agree. Like I, oh. Panda, I understand why you did it, and I don't blame you. <laughs> but I want to know the plot. <laughs> yeah, it's totally fair. There, there is some plot like <laughs> secreted in them, but for the most part, yeah, they're just kind of pontifications. It's not secreted in them. It's literally in them. It's just told in a really beautiful way. Sure. I really appreciate how the uh, it really conveys how Krupp, while being a silly man himself, has a deep understanding of the pain that everyone is going through. And like he, he really gets it. Um, OK. And that comes that, through that part. With I agree. These paragraphs. Yes. But Which, also a lot, a lot of the plot is in right. those parts, isn't it? Like, doesn't he, yes. like, frame scenes a bunch and, like, give interpretation and, like, give setup for the scenes that are important to the plot? Here, let me read this part. The very, very small part of it. The wagon rolled on on its way to the mines. Harlow, who so loved the sun, was destined to wake in darkness. And mayhap, he was never again to see the day's blessed light. Out on the lake, the water glittered with golden tears if the sun might re uh, relinquish its hard glare and for that is one moment weep for the fate of a child. Okay, let me let me clarify. It's not that I just, like, skip them. Like, I read them. I just don't dwell on them. Okay, I might read a little faster sometimes if it's too long. I think these are sections where it would really benefit from having someone read to you. Hmm. I know. I think, it's, I think it's easy to miss how good they are if you're just reading with your eyes. Okay, fair. Like a like a lot of poetry for me, at least. That's super easy. Yeah. Yeah. The the narrator does them in Krupp's voice, so it like it really na like nails hammers it in like when you're switching from like the regular narration to the Krupp narration, and when you're reading it with your eyes, sometimes you might miss it at first and have to like come mm. back and re contextualize but the narrator like does it for you got it okay yeah i'll be honest most of the time i don't re realize it's crap <laughs> saying things <laughs> next chapter great absolutely oh, wait sorry there's one more oh. thing i want to read ah oh okay i want to read it the bard leaned back retrieving his tankard it begins with you he said and it ends with you your eyes to witness your thoughts alone tell no one uh tell me of no one's mind. Presume nothing of the workings. You and I, we tell nothing, but we show. Yeah. Mm. Meta. No. I mentioned this in the group <laughs> chat, but I just want to throw this to the listeners. The Call Me Fisher, really reminiscent of Moby Dick, right? Yes. <laughs> Probably a deliberate callback. I like it. The part where he tells Dreaker, let us fashion an epic to crush the hearts of a thousand generations. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it is. That's it this is so series. Good. That's the series. That's the series. I certainly hope this crushes the hearts of a thousand generations. <laughs> he has high yeah. aspirations, no? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is good. I like it. Chapter 8. Karsa dismantles the roving kingdom of Skathandi. Endas Salon goes on a hike. Spinnik Durav visits Enamander and two high priestesses. Enamander and co. have an encounter with Gothos and set free an elder builder of Azath houses. Before we dive in, I just have to say, Ash, I admire your ability to just distill like thousands of words <laughs> into you. a few sentences. It's, um, I, I don't want to say it's like a super challenging thing, but like there's definitely a trick to it. And it's, 
while I'm going through these, it definitely takes like, okay, but ha- is this, there's nothing <laughs> happening in this part. They're just talking. I like this. I like this chapter, but how am I going to like frame this as a plot, <laughs> plot event? Yeah. I can't. So I, le- I leave out a bunch of, of those things because it's just, oh, character A talks to character B and this doesn't have an impact on the plot directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lean into the pithy a lot to do it. Yeah. Yes. I like the, um, I, I actually, um, I like the longer summaries more as somebody who's like the ones that they do into very big books from the perspective of somebody who's like trying to remember what happened <laughs> in the chapter. So I know what they're discussing, but like from the perspective of like wanting to laugh while I'm listening to something like yours are clever and funny and theirs are just like straight, like they play it like super sober and super straight and yours are always like really funny and uh, and, like I get a little chuckle out of him, you know. So there's a balance there between the yeah. two. It depends on what you need out of it, right? Mm. But yeah, if you're looking I, for a laugh, it's ashes <laughs> all the way. Well, to add some balance, I I I think it sucks. <laughs> if, what? Kieran's being a dick. <laughs> yeah, like if if I was given these for my plots, like for my actual plot summaries for these episodes, I. It probably wouldn't be very helpful. But <laughs> it doesn't matter because I'm the one making the summaries. I'm, re- I'm reading these chapters and you're in my mind like the day of anyways. So I, I prefer yours as well. Um, okay, getting into the actual chapter. I really enjoyed the Carsis stuff in this chapter. Oh man, he just <laughs> walks up and everything falls apart. <laughs> it's... I love the fact that he killed him with words. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, could you imagine Karsa killing someone with words like, I don't know, four books back? He like even better, like he kills him with just his presence, like the river gods it's that are animating the captain are just like they're just like, holy hell, we need to get out of here right now. Dude, like I read this chapter and I was like so upset with Steven Erickson because like <laughs> I looked back on like how much I hated Karsa in book one of House of Chains and like <laughs> just how absolutely amazing he is as a character and how much I love him and how he like manages to make me laugh and like make me like feel awe and make me like feel like he touches my heart and I'm like how can you do this to me Steve how can you do this to me with the guy from book one of House of Chains that I hated so much you know (laughs) he I mean so it's not just that Karsa is like this um, super powerful character, because if it were just that, like I would be, be like, okay, this is getting old. But because we also like get his logic of what he thinks, like why he's doing what he's doing, and also because he is a bit righteous and he's taking down like you know despicable people. And he's sympathetic because like yeah, you're like well I like civilization kind of mostly, but like he's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I I, mean, we have I get it. I I understand. Um, it's kind of, he he's got a bit of a Thanos complex going on. Um, <laughs> and the the part where he was talking about um. Oh, I, I have it here. He says, well, he's thinking to himself, he would tell his people all this. He would make them not his followers, but his companions. 
and together they would bring civilization to ruin whenever and wherever they found it. Because for all the good it created, its sole purpose was to breed followers, enough to heave into motion forces of destruction, spreading a tide of blood at the whim of the, those few cynical tyrants born to lead. Lead, yes, with lies, with iron words, duty, honor, patriotism, freedom, that fed the that fed the willfully stupid with grand purpose, with reason for misery and delivering misery in kind. And it's just such, it's still so relevant to our society today. Um, and especially when I think about like how toxic social media has become. And honestly, like the whole point of any person creating content a lot of times is to gain more followers because with more followers, you get more power, mm-hmm. right? Like an influencer, for example, like just the title of influencer conveys it all. Uh, and that really like hit home. And then also um, like after reading book two in Toll the Hounds, there's this parallel with Calor. And how they are so similar in their, like, ideology, but they are so different as characters. I was noticing those similarities this time as well, and I didn't notice them on the first read. Uh, the conversation between Karsa and Kalor be, like, the most interesting thing in the series? I agree, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. the same thing. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to quickly note... Oh boy, we're making a podcast that we're encouraging people to listen to. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like and and like I'm not saying that, that this is a worthless endeavor, but like it's it's so hard to escape the criticisms that Carsa has. Like yeah. we exist in this and it it's difficult to see how we could not. Yeah. I'm going to go delete all of my social media now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I also like that like when he does ridiculous and absurd things, like, you know how people talk about whether you're laughing with somebody or at them? Yeah. I feel like early in the series, you're mostly laughing at Karsa. And then as it goes on, he continues to be just as absurd, but it ch- like something changes and you're both laughing at the absurdity of Karsa, but also you're kind of laughing for Karsa rather than with him. Cause he's not laughing usually, but like, <laughs> like you're kind of like, like you're like cheering him on, but also you're not, you're not, not seeing how silly it is sometimes and how like, right. like just like over the top ridiculous it can be. I don't know. He's just like this, just this like monstrous deific force. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. so, it's so crazy. Um, I, I also really like all of Sam Ardev's criticisms of him and, and how yeah. they, she melds like criticism with, um, like in this little thing here, we're in her head and she's, it's witness, he would say, in full expectation of just that. He wanted his every deed observed, as if each set of eyes existed solely to mark Karsa Orlong, and the minds behind them served, to the exclusion of all else, to recount to all what he had done, what he had said, what he had begun, and what he had ended. He makes us his history. Every witness contributes to the narrative, the life, the deeds of Toblakai, a narrative to which we are each of us bound. And yeah, like, that's... It's yeah. so... And like, 
at the beginning when he's saying witness every time he does anything. It's so <laughs> doofy and silly. And, and and it comes to this, you know. Sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was saying that, like, nearly every time that she talks about Carso, it's always a mixture of uh, slight admiration with just, uh, I don't know, a mocking contempt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Summer Dev is like one of the more honest interlocutors in the series, I think. And the inflection point between like, I, I don't think that Carson's ever was ever like totally doofy. And that's that is that where he said, I think yeah, so. that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's not ever entirely like this. Like there's hints of what he becomes in like the very first sentences with him. I, I would say, you mean in dead house uh, gates or in house of chains, house of chains. Yeah, it chronologically, not 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 published order. Um, but like, yeah, he does so much growing. And at the same time, there's like a huge tension between his calling out for them to witness and his wanting people to not follow. Have, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking how, about that, too, because he knows he's a special person, seemingly. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking everyone to witness everything he does. <laughs> but and, and like he's he's I think he's clearly implicitly recognizing this within himself. Um, mm. but he's also spouting, oh, hey, we, we, everyone should be their own person. Uh, civilization <laughs> is bad. And, like, and like the, the conflict within his own character is, is also really very interesting. I think. Yeah. I mean, he, he is a cult of personality. Like yep. that's what he is. That's a perfect segue into what I was about to say. Um, <laughs> and that the passage I just read from Sam Redev's perspective is it's like, you know, in in the in the meta physical reality of the series like that could she's describing a path to ascendancy mm -hmm. mm. Well, absolutely so i mean not necessarily saying he is an ascendant or he's not or 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 will be i don't know i don't i, I don't know what level he's at i know uh, but i know he's done some crazy shit so. i mean he's yeah. like at, at this point in the series if we're talking from like a Mechan me mechanistic point of view, like he's definitely either ascendant or near ascendant. That, um, yeah, of course, mechanistic points of view don't really work very well for Malazan. Right. It, it's a weird. It's 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 kind of a weird series in that way because like you get this impression like that the power level is supposed to be like oh the elder are supposed to be more powerful than everything else but then elder beings get their butts kicked by younger ascendants all the time and then like <laughs> all the ascendants get their butts kicked by mortals like Carson goes to fight Akarium and Mappo just has a club and like it's like club trumps Honk. ascendant and like you know like it's like <laughs> it's, I don't know there was a very cynical line of thought. I forget who um whose thought it was, but it was creation demands destruction. Survival demands that something else fails to survive. No existence was truly benign. And like I agree. <laughs> yeah, there's um an ancient Greek philosopher who said that the everything is fire. Um and then of course after him, I think maybe it was before. Another one said everything is water, <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah. But the guy who said everything is fire absolutely believed that. So it is something that I am more and more like conscious of. Like it can be very tiring. And I guess maybe this is what people with anxiety uh, like is like um, 
everything that I do, I'm just like analyzing, okay, what are the pros and cons of this? How is this going to impact like myself, other people? It's very exhausting. Um, to add a, like a physics tangent, <laughs> the most likely way currently that we think that the universe is going to end is heat death. Mm-hmm. Everything that humans do, everything that happens accelerates heat death. Great. Because heat death, yes. So from a very real perspective, the more living you do, the more life you're stealing from the universe. Hey. Thank you for that. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Like, it's not a, it's like the universe is very big and there's lots of energy in it. But, but yeah, the, the more, the more entropy we cause, the quicker uh, everything kind of falls apart. Cool. And I, I only mention that because this is also like a central tension of the, the book. And I think of the series, yeah. the order versus chaos, life versus chaos, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. stealing from each other mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of that i don't know how much we're going to talk about this but i really enjoyed the conversation between animander and endist salon mm-hmm. and seeing animander from endist perspective and uh it giving a lot of humanity to animander because he's staring at the tapestry of their uh their history and on the ta- tapestry do you think it was um still just ruin on the tapestry or do you think it was one of the leos and i think it was Silchus. I yeah, thought so too, but I they said he had onyx eyes, and doesn't Silchus have red eyes? Oh, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, he was betrayed by somebody, and uh, uh, and just just saw him with an infinite compassion, being able to uh, forgive somebody and make excuses for somebody, even though they did something that to him. I just thought that was really nice. I really get the sense that like Steve meditated for like a week before he wrote anything about Animander every time because. <laughs> like every time Animander shows up in this book, it's so profound, <laughs> and there's there's so much to dig into. Um, again, Animander says almost nothing. <laughs> right after that, he's talking about uh, the Redeemer, and yeah. he's like, "Oh, yeah. I really admired him, and but I have a kind of a problem with the theology because it it demands nothing from the the worshiper, and it was just mm-hmm. a really great convo." So. I have two things, two follow-ups. So when Anna Mander was saying, like, looking at the tapestry and he was saying he did not mean it. And then Enda says, your ability to forgive far surpasses mine, Lord. And then uh, Anna Mander says, the body follows the head, but sometimes it's the other way around. There was a cabal, ambitious, hungry. They used him, Endus. They used him badly. So that person that they're talking about that got used badly i i thought they were talking about maybe the cripple god but that's not what they were talking about yes okay no so endist is recalling back to the tyst civil war basically all of these yeah which is on his mind (laughs) yeah it's it's before the crippled god right before the crippled god was brought to this world Yes. yes right okay and then the part about the whole redeemer and the difference between redemption and absolution. Mm. I was like, you're calling out Christianity. At least that's how <laughs> I read it. Some um, flavors of it for sure. Yeah. Which I will just say, I think that that's something that I would just need to like, dwell on and sit with for a long time to and not to like understand it but to 
figure out what my stance is on it. Like, how do I agree? Do I not agree? What parts do I not agree with? You know, um, and I just, I don't have the mental capacity or time right now or like emotional <laughs> <laughs> ability. I, I think it's something that Christianity has been uh, struggling with for 2000 mm-hmm. years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot. Yes. Yeah. I <laughs> like, I, I know how I answer these questions and I, I think, because I think become satisfied with my answers. Um, it's like a big part of um, why I don't actually have a problem with the idea that free will be an illusion. Mm. I, I know a lot of people do. But um, if you accept that, then you don't actually have to deal with these problems very much, <laughs> which, which is useful. Um, but uh, also, yeah, like it's very much human nature to dwell on these questions like if you do horrible things can you ever be redeemed and he explores this all through the book of course um the character of sierdomen being i think a great example because sierdomen we never have seen him do anything actually horrible besides like the murder here and and the priestess yeah so sierdomen participated in like one of the most horrifying empires that we've seen in this series. Well, probably the most horrifying, right? Like they're eating people and raping people all the time. So presumably he was complicit in a lot of those acts and he saw terrible things and he didn't do anything. Um, but do we, like, are we spending a lot of time being very angry at so- Sierra Doman for these things? It doesn't seem like it. Um, meanwhile, like if pe- if characters do terrible things that we see on screen, we are very angry at them for a very long time. Uh, like Malik Rell. And then there are characters like Karsa who do terrible things, and then we like them anyways. Yeah. Has Karsa done anything to redeem himself? Unclear. <laughs> uh, right, he's grown, but <laughs> that's not quite the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't take away the rapes and the murders. Exactly. Um, and then, as far as Seerdomen, he's the he's the guy he's the Seerdomen from Memories of Ice that mm-hmm. interacts with Talk, right? Yeah. Yeah, I confirmed. He, I think this chapter, yeah. Does he do anything especially horrible or good in those sequences? I forget. It's been so All long. All we see of him it. is that he's nice to talk. Yeah. That yeah, there's a missed yeah. coat. But he is also in the position, in a high enough position that he's uh taking care of the Panion Seer's most valuable prisoner. <laughs> so right. how did he get there? <laughs> what did he do? It's implied in, in these chapters that he's been complicit in a lot of stuff yeah right he certainly feels very guilty about it Mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah he doesn't think that he can ever be redeemed at all right period but he's trying to do some things that he considers to be good even though they're they're pretty bad (laughs) they're morally (laughs) compromised but he thinks that he's taking himself like the sins onto himself so that the tice don't have to and so that he can prove to them that that humans can sometimes police themselves so clearly he thinks that he's doing something ethical Somewhere along the line. Which is an echo of Whiskey Jack, right? Yeah. Is that is that pointed out in, in the sequence? Yes. Or okay. Yes. Uh I was it's like it, about it. Th- yeah. there's no way I came up with that, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it just seems like something that was in the narrative. Uh so yeah, I forgot who brought it up. Um yeah, it's an echo of Whiskey Jack. Uh and the Tyst, of course, response to it is, oh, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> So this is a great chapter. 
We haven't even talked about uh, the best character. This is this is what I'm saying. I love the I the Azath householder. No, the, yeah, and Amander, <laughs> and Gothos, of course. I Gothos have a well. problem with with a part of that, but I mean, I got really excited when I realized who Namander was interacting with in that whether whatever other realm looking thing, um, and. Then it also was explicitly pointed out by Gothos that, hey, now there's an Azath house into the blood of dragons. And I'm like, okay. This and Amanda is be did a- it. <laughs> this is going to be important nice. later. Yeah. <laughs> what are the implications of this? I don't know. <laughs> but there will Big. be. Yeah. And I'm making cakes and I'm not giving you any. <laughs> oh, man. But my, my issue was, so they they talked about like placing the last stone and like the azath house builder was inside the azath house building it we don't need to be outside for this final stone to be placed and the man was like no 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 no, no. i i'll do it i'll be here and you go my problem is when when the builder pushes the stone out to namander I mean, at some point, that stone must have, like, clicked into place, right? <laughs> like, that would have been it. What if, Am I what wrong? If it's, like, what if it's long and he, he moves it out like this? But he built the thing. <laughs> he, he, he could, I, yeah. I, I, I struggle I, thinking about the logistics of this scene every time I read it. Yeah, I, the logistics really that. bother me. <laughs> I, I don't see any reason why they couldn't have both escaped, but... I don't know. Maybe well, there's they, a masonry thing that we don't no, know. No, they're about. totally. He he even said we can both go. Commander was the one who was like, "No, I will stay. I'll sacrifice myself." No, wasn't and it? Live an no, eternity of suffering for you. Didn't he justify it by saying he didn't know where the house was going to pop out or something like sure. that? Sure. I I don't remember. There was there was something. Yeah. Um, I guess I didn't think about it that much. <laughs> so my my. Other thing with this scene is like, does Gothos just get to come and go as he pleases as like I the know, guardian? He's the guardian of the dead house in Malas City, and like he's just like here in like a jag hut place, and he's like doing whatever with this Azath builder, and then like does he go back to the dead house after this? Uh, like does he just like have a free pass to come and go like Kelvin and Dancer used to, but? Like he's he's a guardian. He's, what happens if somebody trespasses in in the dead house while he's on Genabacus doing this stuff for some reason? Like, yeah, like Gothos is essentially Krupp, but for like the entire Milazan world, where Krupp is just mostly for Darugistan, right? <laughs> and Gothos has been doing it for like millions of years, maybe. Uh, so you know he's figured he's figured out everything there is to know. Like about these places, I think maybe not. Well, he I'm, wrote the book on it, right? He wrote. Oh, he wrote many. He's books. like the Herodotus of the of the world, right? <laughs> like he like wrote like the whole history and like, or maybe the Aristotle even because he like he like has like the like a lot of his books deal with like which species are where and where they came from and like you know like the Jack Hut tyrant stuff was in part of Gothos's folly. And the um, the distinction between him and Aristotle is that Gothos is right about a lot of things. <laughs> he doesn't think some people are just born slavey. Just slavey, yeah. 
wasn't Aristotle right about a lot of natural science stuff? Like um, in, in, later uh, on, like he was closer than he should have been. That's for sure. And, and like his philosophy is still is still very much um, relevant. And like virtue ethics is an entire branch that kind of sprang from him. Uh, but he also got a lot of stuff wrong, which is to be expected because he did a lot of he he wrote a lot of things, and he didn't have any data to back any of it up. Right. He was right, just right. he was just thinking Intuition. this this is how it would be nice if it was like this, and also warm climates and cold climates and all that stuff. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, Aristotle didn't have the benefit that Gothos has of living forever. Yes. Um, exactly. <laughs> And I doubt Gothos thinks he got it all right either. He seems pretty self-deprecating. <laughs> yeah, but also contemptuous of everybody else. Yeah. And, and like he feels I get a feeling enough. that's kind of tongue-in-cheek though, yeah? Uh, yes. Yeah, but also, he's, he's like one of the biggest meddlers in, in the Malazan universe. Like he's always messing with things. And clearly he's doing that because he thinks he knows best. Otherwise, why would he be doing it? But isn't part of his joke? Isn't part of his philosophy that like most of the things he did to metal, like that stemmed from an arrogance that he no longer holds to and that he like tries to teach other people that they should let go of that kind of arrogance and like not not continue to to meddle. Yeah, but he still is meddling, right? And then, like, pretty big stuff. Like, he's he's kind of keeping this elder being prisoner for, like, a is long he? time. Uh, he's allowing him to be a prisoner when, like, clearly he could get him away, I think. I, you know? Mm, I think this might be a better conversation after we read Carcanus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do have problems. I, I am having problems like trying to justify what I'm saying because I'm like, oh, some of the things I'm drawing from are from Blood and Bone, and some of them are from Carcanus. Yeah. You know, like it's like all over the place. I have a question. Um, Spinnick said that he was away for a time on another journey on behalf of Animander hunting a dragon. Am I supposed to know which dragon he was hunting? I had the same question. I don't think so. Maybe he was hunting Olar Ethel. That's okay. my only... I, I don't have anything to support this. But. Though, though at the time, if he was, he was in the wrong place, because at the time she she was heading to the meeting. This might be one of those things where um, Steve dropped a little hint that uh, he wanted Cam to pick up on, and it just never came up, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it goes, conversations like the one he'd found at the end of that quest were not worth repeating. So maybe he's like, yeah, this could have been cool, but nah, the storyline didn't end well. Spinnock is like a guy that's had a lot of really interesting adventures that we'll never hear about. Okay. Yeah. Um, Oh, speaking of Spinnock, Spinnock, um, how do you feel about the uh, age gap relationship in this? Besides female-led relationships, it seems like there are a lot, awful lot of old men paired with younger women in this. Um, the, the other most notable one being Dwicker and Solara, although obviously they're not really in a relationship at the moment. But isn't Spinnock not really in a relationship with the priestess? No, but he's like, oh, I've given my heart to her, even though we've only talked once, and I would die for her. Things that you know? I could say, but you know what? I'm, I'll just be honest with you. 
I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't really care either. Um, the, the, I, I really like that bit when he was talking about um, Duiker and Scalara because she was holding him by the arm like they were a couple, and because they weren't, it really made him feel really nice. So yeah. Scalara is such a nice lady. I like her so much. She is. Yeah. yeah. Her little self. The next chapter, right, where she's like, she meets the Phoenix and people, and she's all self deprecating. And... Yeah. Do we want to move on yeah. chapter 10? Yeah. Chapter we're on nine, chapter so. 9. Yeah. Or we are moving to chapter 9. Chapter 9. Barathal decides to force a little free market capitalism down Durjistan's throat. Scorch and Left seek gainful employment as gate guards with Torvald as their boss. Marilio gets put on the case of the missing Harlow, who has made a new friend. Chalice finds a bit of comfort in the arms of her husband's dear friend. Solara teaches Cutter a lesson and forces Dwicker out of his slump. Oh, sorry, I mentioned Solara. Just, yay, Solara. <laughs> I, I really appreciate how... Yes, DeWicker is deeply in pain and he's traumatized and, you know, there's probably nothing that can really fix that. But you know what helps? A, a really beautiful woman from a taking interest in you. <laughs> and that's just, I think that's, I think that's how male brains work, right? Like that's how mine, sorry, heterosexual brain, male brains work. That's how mine works. Like, yeah, even if I'm feeling very terrible of myself, it just does feel nicer when a pretty girl is talking to you. Yep. Um, first, Barathol, love him. Second, he's the best. Chower, <laughs> yes. Second, Harlow meeting David Anon Toll. I probably butcher that, but I yeah, love that. Long... I was not expecting it. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the old inventor guy. Yeah. It was a nice convo. It's like the first splints. guy to invent tools. It seems like I'm going to get him some splints. I just got to find out first what are splints. <laughs> How do you think this happened? Do you think, like, maybe he fell down, broke his legs, and he was still alive for a while, and then the ritual of Talon happened, yeah. and he was still alive, so yeah, he became part of it? Yeah, that must have been. <laughs> like, just like, I don't know what's guy. going on. <laughs> like, Why am I still alive? just insane? <laughs> yeah, he was. He had heard about it, though. Like, he, he knew that the ritual was going to happen, As I think. Right. So why couldn't he just turn to dust and float out of here? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, there's no wind, I guess. I don't know. Maybe he didn't know how. He it's, wasn't there. Yeah, that's also true. And it's also like uh, very rocky. I don't know how well the Tlan must travel through not dirt. Because so Erickson because didn't his... want him to. Yeah. <laughs> maybe his legs are broken. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it if your legs are broken. I don't know. Uh. I don't know. Yeah, his legs were broken, so metaphorically, his ability to travel was also impaired. And as okay, we know, the metaphor made real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there was a character, Gaz, which, I mean, I don't really know what the point of Gaz is, to be honest. Um, Just you wait. <laughs> okay. Rafo. <gasps> well, he had a part in here where I wanted to focus on. He said, while well, he was thinking, his failing is not in being inarticulate through some lack of intellect. No, this mind is most finely honed, but he views his paucity of words in both thought and dialogue as a virtue, sigil of rigid manhood. He has made brevity and obsession an addiction, and in his endless paring down, he strips away all hope of emotion and with it, empathy. 
When language is lifeless, what does it serve? When meaning is rendered down, what veracity holds to the illusion of death? Bah, to such conceits, such anal self-serving affectation. (laughs) Wax extravagant and let the world swirl thick and pungent about you. Tell the tale of your life as you would live it. And I was like, this is hilarious. It's just (laughs) such a juxtaposition of like, first, how many words he used to talk about brevity. And Mm -hmm. also, I am reading about this in such a large tome of a book. Yeah. But, Uh, oh, go ahead. And and from Krupp, one of the most long-winded characters. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's Krupp's narration there. Oh, is this Krupp's narration? Yeah. The parts you skim, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can't tell if it's Krupp or not when he doesn't say, and Krupp says blah, 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 or Krupp does blah. Well, um, the ba didn't give it away. I don't know. Like the narrator, the, the narrator has no t- no tone normally. So, okay. like, in, whenever the narrator's like giving flavor and opinion, it's I it's did crow. thought that was weird. Okay, I I guess I just did not pick it up that it was crow. I think that the narrator has like a a wistful, sad tone to him, mm. but d- definitely not as pronounced as crow. Well, so for this part. Um, I also thought it was like Erickson making a point about brevity because, I mean, he is a short story writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's writing like the largest books I've, I'm ever reading. And the short so- stories are long too. <laughs> <laughs> so this, um, this made me think of, um, of like how much we like, like, yeah. So obviously I thought of like Eric- Erickson's clearly making an argument about his own writing here, right? Uh, but like, also, it made me think about like um, how everybody, pr- like modern critics and audiences, like they value brevity and getting to the point and having these like straightforward narrative structures that are like pared down, and like often they quote Polonius mm. to justify it, right? And I was like, but in Shakespeare, like those plays are so like from that perspective bloated and like full of like you know stuff that if you like submitted if you submitted hamlet today like people would be like oh you could trim down this scene with the players and this guy like reciting from this uh poem about rome and like blah, blah. you know what i mean like like it's just like like that like obvious and polonius is a idiot in that play you know so it's he's like, the most long-winded character <laughs> yes <laughs> shakespeare himself is poking fun at it and- <laughs> right right yeah and like he's always spouting these aphorisms and like trying to tell his son how to live his life and at like at the same time Polonius himself is like deeply pathetic and like he never follows his own advice and um yeah so that's a I was I was about to draw the same comparison (laughs) although I don't I don't know if I would say that oh my I don't know if I would say that the culture values brevity all that much given the nature of modern expositional styles huh. being so repetitive <laughs> you know you know what i'm saying no Explain. well wait repetitive doesn't mean i don't think doesn't imply a certain level of pared down versus like it's slowed it's in. not it's not brevity to say the same thing three times right it's not if you repeat th- something a lot of times you're not being brief and if you say something three times over, 
Oh, okay. <laughs> that's not very pared down, right? Mm. I don't well, think it's necessarily modern prose style, though. I, I think it's a lot of what's popular in the fantasy genre. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, well, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting is when he says, you know, when you pare things down and strip away all hope of emotion and with it empathy, right? It's like, it just becomes so sterile. Like the words become sterile. And here is where I may lose a lot of listeners. Okay. But I'm going for it. I'm so excited. So you could say something like, just use the word hickey. (laughs) But instead, an artist uses, I knew you'd linger like a tattoo kiss. And like just the difference between those two, like one is definitely more poetic. It makes you like, it draws you in. You want to know more. It's very beautiful. But if you just pare it down to like, well, you could have just said, you gave me a hickey. It's just, it doesn't sound as nice. And I'll tell you, I just quoted Taylor Swift. <laughs> there is this on the internet. If you're a Taylor Swift fan, which I can't say that I am a Taylor Swift fan. I don't hate her. I just, I'm not don't a they have huge Swift fan. Or I am not a Swifty. But I have come across on the internet just like people pointing out like why she stands out as an artist like her lyrics are so poetic and it's just who knew that steven erickson and taylor swift would have this in common and there is a reddit thread where people do just point out examples like swifties like analyze her lyrics like we analyze what steven erickson is writing and saying here you know like that's how deep and rich her lyrics are. Anyway, I so much love the absolutely out of left field comparisons you make with Melissa and other <laughs> things. That's honestly, it's it's amazing. I I as a counterpoint to what Krupp says, I think that there's also a lot that is lost in impact when you say too much. Yes, true. And Krupp. I think sometimes says too much. <laughs> <laughs> I also agree. Yeah. Like I, would anyone disagree? Um, and there's also a lot to be said for not telling people how they should feel. Not that, not that Krupp does this necessarily, but um, for mood, one of my very favorite authors is Guy Gabriel K who never, almost never tells you how you should feel about something. He simply describes it and he sometimes it describes so other exactly sort of um (laughs) but like he can convey very very specific moods and feelings a lot of times very concisely and he doesn't tell you how you should feel he just makes you exactly sad as heck that guy makes me cry so much more than steven erickson does even i always have this like bittersweet feeling and i've cried and i'm just like oh guy gabriel k what are you doing to me I finished River of Stars last week, and I am so not over that ending. Oh, interesting. I haven't read anything of his yet. but I'm still not over Tagana, and I read it like five years ago. (laughs) The Lines of Alarsan is one of the best books I've ever read. It was really good. Absolutely. Can we talk about Barathol? 
Isn't he the best? Yeah. He is great. What do you want to say? Yeah, he's he's coming in here. He's a libertarian about his his trade practices. <laughs> Tell me what you love about him. Well, so his interaction the where he with the clerk. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. With oh. the clerk of the blacksmith guild. Uh, when I was reading that interaction, I was laughing and also wanted to cry and was also very angry. Like I had <laughs> all of these emotions because unfortunately, it is so relatable. So the whole context, right, is like, hey, I'm new to Darujistan and I like want to set up a blacksmith, like my smithy, right? Um, and the guy's like, oh, well, you need sponsorship. Um, and to get sponsorship, <laughs> like, you have to, in order to apprentice, you have to get sponsorship, but then you can't get sponsorship, except whatever. And it's like, so how can I actually do this? Oh, well, basically, you can't. And what that reminded me of is, have you ever seen a job posting for like an entry level job? And they're like, we're looking for somebody with five plus years of experience. I'm like, that is not an entry level job. This is such a meme with software development. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's for software that hasn't existed for that long. Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is my point. I think it was like with Go or something, the, the Go coding language, which has yeah. only existed since 2012 to the public and then people are like yeah we're looking for people with like 10 plus years of experience in this it's like are you freaking kidding me the guy who developed one of these softwares applied for a job uh that asked for more experience with the yeah. software he developed then uh then, then as long as it and he, and he couldn't like apply for the job because of it basically I love reading interviews where people wrote a library and then they were asked a question about the library and they were denied the job because they didn't have <laughs> they didn't have the correct uh, understanding. So the reason why I'm very angry is because uh, I, throughout my career, I've met a lot of people who are like, how do I get into a certain career path? And they're like looking at these job applications and I've been there, like looking at all these job um, postings and just feeling like I am inadequate. I cannot apply to this mm -hmm. because I do not check all of these boxes. And I mean, there are tons of studies and like articles out there about like specifically how women um, take a different, have a different reaction than men and men will be like, sure, whatever. Maybe I fit three of the 10 things. I'm still going to apply anyway. And what I want to say is for the people who are applying, just apply. Like, it's definitely a no if you don't give it a try. For the people who are hiring and posting these job postings, <laughs> this is bullshit. Okay? <laughs> like, you. if you're not going to be willing to pay top dollar for a unicorn candidate that you are looking for, then you need to adjust your expectations. And if you're not willing to adjust your expectations, you better be willing to pay that person that what they deserve. And also, I, I've talked to hiring managers, and I think most of them are realistic. They just they put these way too hard things to, I guess, filter out the people who aren't as confident as they want. I suppose. Which is like it's a whole test in itself. It's and still that's bullshit. Like, yeah. It you know like getting a job interview shouldn't be like trying to go to the moon okay that's just not how it should be and so for anybody who is a hiring manager i don't know who listens to this 
if you're a hiring manager, just be realistic. Okay. Look at this job description. Would <laughs> you, would you qualify for it? Anyway. I, okay. yeah, I had, not that I got Rent the over. job, but it was, it was easier to apply to a literal rocket company <laughs> that I actually got an interview at, um, than it is to apply to many <laughs> other positions that obviously don't have such high stress. The other thing is, um, it is also very important to like really evaluate the skills that you have and see how they are transferable to like something that may seem very outside of what you qualify for. Because a lot of times jobs are, can you communicate well verbally and also in written form? And can you act like a professional adult? Mm. Honestly, those things are way more important um, a lot of the times because you could be like the smartest person and have terrible communication skills. And that person is very hard to work with and nobody wants to work with you. Mm-hmm. I think we should put in the description of this episode. Uh, job advice re- at one hour, 20 advice. minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just very passionate about this. It okay, sounds like arguments that you've had before. I get that. <sighs> So don't forget also the end of that whole conversation. Uh, Barathol was like, and why were you sleeping when I came in? Uh, I do not think I was sleeping. I saw you <laughs> sleeping. And he, he just never yeah. backed down. And I loved it. The, oh, yeah. Like it was talking about how the clerk was like, um, obviously physically inferior to Barathol, but he was enjoying like this tiny little bit of power he had over him. The yeah. Boring complex. Oh boy. That's a bureaucrat right there. And it's yep. in two chapters, but the way Barathol handles the, what do they call them, <laughs> the breakers, was, was just, was fantastic. Yep. I was just like, yeah. Oh, Barathol, he's really likable in these chapters. Um, oh, man. So we, we've got to the, the ethics of employment. <laughs> um, Scorch and Left are definitely the type to apply to positions that they do not have qualifications for. It worked out for them here. Um, thankfully, they found an employer that was willing to work with their deficiencies, and uh, it I think like she it's hired them for there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I love when uh, Torvald's talking with the Castellan, and what did the Castellan say? Uh, comparative. Here it is. Perhaps as the captain of the house guard, Torvald stated, "I haven't said any word yet, and I'm already promoted." Comparative exercises yields confidence in this assessment. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're just so obviously better than those two. I, oh man, Scorch and Left. I it would be hard to hire them for anything. I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> although hey, they get some free healthcare. Which, <laughs> bonus. Um, it's, it's wrong really well. But... I love when they hire the three of them, and he's like, "Oh, is twenty five whatever enough?" And they're just like, <laughs> furiously shaking, uh, nodding their heads. Uh-huh. Oh man, yep. Chapter ten. One last thing, sorry. We, we haven't even talked about Marilia or Chalice or Solara. <laughs> oh, okay. There's a lot here. Um, sorry. The conversation between Dweaker and Solara is a perfect example of why I love Steven Erickson's conversations. Because they will say one thing early in the conversation, and, and then they'll meander a bit, and they'll come back to it and say it again in a very clever way. And I just really like reading it like that, because it feels real. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. I, I'll just introduce as well. Uh, I really like how Solara in like i think the most kind way possible let's cut her know that his behavior towards her has is like really not acceptable 
Mm. And yeah. at the end, he gets it. Um, and like, he's just, he's just like a, he's still basically just a kid. Right. And he hasn't had any real relationship, mm-hmm. but um, at the end he gets it. And that's really nice to see. Mm-hmm. She was also very succinct in summarizing the events of like dead house gates. <laughs> This happened and this happened and this happened. Yeah, I had to learn from somewhere. Do you want to talk about Salah or what else? What else did you want to talk about? Marilio or Chalice Marilio? Oh, when uh, Stani learns about Harlow, that was this chapter. Yeah. Yep. God, that was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And she just breaks down and cries, and then she starts yelling at uh, Maril. I forgot her name, but uh, Harlow's mother, adoptive she mother. Just... Yeah. God. Yeah. You could just feel the pain. Yeah. On like both sides too, right? And um, I don't remember who says it, but someone someone tells um, Stani that, "Oh, you've been giving the money to Snell. You know he's a psychopath." Oh yeah, Gruntle. Right? He, he, yeah, like he doesn't he doesn't hide it. Snell, like mm-hmm. obviously Snell's not a good actor. Um, so the only reason for Stani to have done this and not notices this she's like intentionally missing it basically because mm-hmm. again she like can't look at harlow and just doesn't but want to think about him it's not just Stani; it's so. also um the parents, the parents right yeah. and that that was something that i had thought about is like as much as snell is a psychopath psychopath like how much of that is um because of his parents and mm-hmm. how you know, maybe they didn't prepare him. They're not like really helping him adjust to having Harlow as an adoptive brother. Um, and I mean, there's not that much given about those two other than, you know, like the the dad is um, disabled. Yeah. And the mother gets headaches, I think. Right. And, and she, she's taking care of the father and. There's a lot of love there, but it doesn't seem to extend very far to the children. And it's a very complicated family. Yeah. Yeah. And like from from like a pragmatic, cold sort of perspective, like it's 100% the parents' fault, no matter how you look at it, right? If it's, if you think it's nature or nurture, because nature, well, That's they're true. the ones that gave birth to him in the first place. And nurture, they're the ones that raised him. <laughs> so it makes sense that they're unwilling to grapple with the reality of the child that they have well and the way that Snell, like he is thinking about he how he can manipulate his mother mm-hmm. and how his mother won't like believe or accept that her son is such a horrible mm-hmm. person you know and he plays into that he knows that like his parents will always feel guilty for the way that he acts. And that gives him like freedom to Mm -hmm. act the way that he wants to. And he uses that as leverage against them. Mm -hmm. And like Snell's a sociopath, but he's right. Yep. (laughs) He's absolutely right about how parents feel about their children and how they feel responsible for everything they did. And all of the, the intricacies of that. Yeah. (sighs) A lot of, a lot of complexity there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh boy. (sighs) Uh, Also, uh, yeah, Marilio and Stani, they kind of hit it off, which is nice. Uh, I like their conversation about the, da- the, 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 the dueling school. Like, they both know mm-hmm. exactly what's going on here. Stani's not making any master fencers. Uh, <laughs> Marilio is the, the, the protege of 
the best fencer in Druid Stance oh, history, yeah. apparently. Who only took a student every, like, seven years or something. Every three. Or three years, yeah. Something like that. Um, and then who also hated fencing. <laughs> As, it's good to see. I think. That was fun. Did you have something, Karen? Uh, there was one uh the Omniscient Krupp narration where it was uh, Marilio consoling uh, Stani and how mm-hmm. he, he she just needed someone to listen to him and he was the perfect person for that because he knew exactly that. It was just very touching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes you just need someone to listen. And the, as, I, as I said, the people in Molasson are often just not willing to listen. Uh, chapter 10. Brood and Salon <laughs> and a Salon. Spend some time catching up. Carson and Traveler make fast friends with one another. Seerdoman clear, cleans out the city of treason. Amanda and co. plan their assault on Bastion. The epigraph for this chapter is great. Very poetic and lyrical. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Fisher. Very Green Day. Is this the music when the music ends when or whatever? Yeah. In September. I, I, I liked Crone in this chapter. Yeah. She gave a, a great line. It's not in my nature to grieve. I despise it. In fact, I rail against it. My sphincter explodes upon it. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that when I heard it. I was not expecting Kaladin Brood to show back up in this series yeah. because I thought he, like, I had to go read Return of the Crimson Guard or something to go read more of him. I don't think he's in Return of the Crimson Guard. No, he is okay. not. Is he in any of the ice books? He's in uh, Orb Scepter Throne because it's a oh, sequel. Okay. To right, one. right, right, right. I've pretty much everyone from this one's in that one. Okay, I don't know where I got that notion from. Anyway. Uh, I really liked uh, seeing Karsa and Samar reunite. It was funny and endearing. Isn't it also hilarious how how angry she gets? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that him and Traveler make such good friends with each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she She's so angry. And she's angry at herself for being angry. Yep. I also thought it was funny how the whole time she's like talking to Traveler about Karsa and he's like worried about it and then like he sees what happened with the captain and he's like well i'm less worried now i i'm kind of looking forward to it and she's like don't expect hugs and kisses and then the very first <laughs> thing that happens when they see carsa is he gives her a huge hug yeah. she's, like so pissed about it yeah he's so happy to see her suffocating embrace is what it said and then uh, even traveler was grinning <laughs> oh right because he's grinning because of the because he got the hugs and kisses he was told not to expect <laughs> yeah and, and then traveler seems to have some high level knowledge of the early expansion of the malazan empire do you guys have any theories on oh my how goodness we're this? not going there did they already come out and say it at this point yes yes did they yes so, yeah. Earlier in the book. That. It's Dasimultor. Yeah, they, they legitimately... They call him by name earlier uh, in the meeting with Kelvin and Dancer. Uh, Maybe it's Hood. You. you. It's probably Hood. That's probably you know, it. Hey, Panda. I'll, let me tell you something. When you're listening to the uh, Memories of Ice spoil, full, a full spoilers episode, they're like talking about like, oh, I, I wonder if they're gonna get that... Uh, that traveler is decimal for blah blah blah, and they're like, "Oh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe, uh, Yasna will, but 
But I don't know about Panda, and then you had it in like five seconds as soon as you met like both of you us. Guys. I was just a second level misdirect. Uh-huh. Um, so uh Janeth, you had um read the quote about Carsa like witnessing and all that. Um and that made me like think of a line of questioning, which is like what is the point of history if there aren't any witnesses, right? Like History really only exists because of witnesses. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any recording. Um, but that also made me think of... So, yeah, do worker. Anyway. <laughs> does a Sorry. tree falling in the forest make a sound? Hmm. If there's no one there to hear it. And I think I have an answer. I think what? the answer is no. Because... Okay. Sound is created through vibrations in the eardrum. So if there are no eardrums there to hear it, like it's just vibrations. You wouldn't hear a sound. I mean, it's still just vibrations if you're hearing it. Or, That's true. But if you take the, the word sound literally, like, no. Very I think it's very human-centric. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm done. Uh, Seerdemon's kind of like a murderous Batman. That's neat, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's definitely a vigilante. Definitely vigilante. I don't think I have anything new to say about him because I, I said it early. I, I blew my wad early in the episode. Very sad. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did that too with this chapter. <laughs> well, <laughs> what is really interesting is that Seer Doman gives us this perspective of like what happens to an empire after. Um, there is a change in power, mm. especially when it's an outside force upsetting the, you know, the seated power. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is really interesting because like for some people, they're like, hey, life is better now. And others are like, I want to go back to the way it was. Um, yeah. and, like, one thing I, I have was, a very hands off approach. One, one thing I was kind of grappling with here is that like. There's an there there's like sort of an obvious parallel to you know a lot of reactionaries in various historical circumstances but but the parallel's sort of incomplete because like I think that it's kind of like inarguable from the reader's perspective that the Tyst are benevolent and like in most cases when there's a social change like this and you have reactionaries like railing against the regime the new regime uh even if you can make the case that the new regime is like that the new regime is ultimately benevolent most historical like progressive social changes are accompanied by some level of atrocity that lets or 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 like even some like you know quote unquote necessary and you can argue whether it's necessary or not but like repressions or reprisals or whatever whatever right and so like there's always like some thing of substance for the reactionaries to like point at or at least like you know and in, 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 in enough that that they can say it's of substance right but with the tice there really isn't anything right like like is there, there anything is. in history that would match the level of benevolence of the tice you know what i mean like, definitely not yeah uh well okay as far as i know not but you're missing one very important thing the tice look different and it's a facetious thing for to say, but still racism, right? Like this is such a 
deep-seated human thing that like it's still like something they can point to and be like you're not being ruled by humans anymore you're being ruled by these aliens uh, that aren't us these cold dark bastards right and a dragon and yeah i mean and that part (laughs) is the obvious parallel that that is part of the obvious parallel i was saying like does map on it's just like i don't know the level of benevolence of the Tyst is like sort of like nothing we've seen right in real life like yeah it's very deliberately set up to be like these people have no legitimate grievance but because humans are so prone to be dissatisfied and prone to romantic notions of the idealized past that they're gonna rebel anyways (laughs) and seerdom's like no please we have it good right now (laughs) i think it's also like it sounds like those people who want to rebel, they had some sort of power. Like they felt more mm. purposeful um, in the previous empire. And now they're like, well, they kind of, they lost it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these, they, these were they high ups in the Penian Seer's empire. Yeah. The Ur- like Erdo, whatever. Erdo men and Seerdo men and yeah, the, the like. Yeah. And Traveler, I think it's Traveler, also talks about how the Malazan style of conquest was like real conquest. um, It wasn't occupation, it was conquest. It wasn't occupation, it was conquest, yeah. So what you do is you uh, attack the centers of power and then you make life better for everybody else and you don't impact their lives much beyond that. Right. Um, Hey, that's just taken from from Rome, uh, which is funny. (laughs) Probably Mongolia too, right? Um, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they were very. Um, I mean, they did a lot of village slaughters. Uh, if you yeah, they're pretty anything. ruthless and notorious for that. But yeah, <laughs> but like at the same time, they were also uh, very tolerant of religions because their religion was tribal and was linked to the steppe lands. So well, even they, they converted really... to. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't have much to say about this chapter. I think my last point here is like with Namander's observation of the impact of Kellic on the people of Bastion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very vivid. Uh, he said, like the the part in the book is. Namander said nothing, thinking instead of those faces in that mob, the black stains smeared round their mouths the pits of their eyes, clothed in rags, caked with filth, few children among them, as if the Kellic made them all equal, regardless of age, regardless of any sort of readiness to manage the world and the demands of living. They drank and they starved, and the present was the future, until death stole away that future. A simple trajectory, no worries, no ambitions, no dreams. And what I took away from that is... It seems like this is Erickson's way of portraying alcoholism. Um, since, I mean, all I know is like this book is dedicated to his father and his father was an alcoholic. Um, and I'm assuming that Erickson would have seen like, you know, firsthand what what that does to a person. I, I agree, but I, I think it's also calling back to a, a deep-seated human impulse to just stop caring, you know, mm-hmm. and just decide to embrace the suffering, basically, um, and the chaos, and 
not not try and build anything, not try and do anything, just kind of revel in the horrors of existence. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think it also just addiction more generally. Yeah. And yeah, and I sure. think that there's a connection between what Ash is talking about and what and what people are chasing when they're mm-hmm. when they're chasing like drug use. My, I mean, uh, while we were reading this this one, uh, like leading up to this episode, my friend uh, who had basically that personality for the last couple of years, like he was like one of these Kellogg zombies. Uh, he just passed away, like in between the last episode and this one. Uh, and like I, it got Sorry. to the point where I couldn't even like you know talk to him anymore because I knew like where it was going and you know every time I talk to him it's about money and and you know at a certain point like everybody's tried to help him like a million times over you can't got to cut your losses because you can't like substitute yourself for like the giant gaping hole in society that leads to that kind of addiction right or in, or in someone's life or both and. uh you know, you got to just kind of move on. But uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that I grapple with quite a bit. And the notion... Okay, so I've, I've been saying that people in the lesson just need to talk to each other. Sometimes there's nothing to say. And sometimes there's nothing anyone can do to fix what's wrong. And right. So yeah, like I, I encounter that a lot. Like I, I struggle with mental health issues and... There's nothing that anyone can do functionally and nothing that anyone can say that'll make me feel better. (laughs) So the impulse to do what these Kellogg drinkers do to, to give up to, um, you you know, um, all, all that's associated with it. Like it's a very powerful impulse that you just kind of have to not give into because if you do that, you're just going to hurt people. (laughs) And at some point, like a lot of people just stop caring and it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to totally fault them there. Because it's very tiring to keep it's fighting exhausting. it. It's exhausting. It's so tiring. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And like at some point you just have nothing left to give. It, his ex uh, messaged me and uh, his most recent ex. So she was like, you know, trying to help him like recover and get sober at the lowest points. Uh, and I mean, even she had to like bow out cause it was just too much. Uh, but she, one of the things she said was like about how much he, sh- he struggled. Uh, and she was just like, well, he's not struggling now. And I was just like, Oh my God. Mm. And yeah, like it just like pfft. that, that, that was a bigger gut punch than like any of the reminiscences or any of the other things that anybody said was just her saying like, well, he's not struggling anymore. And I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> And it hurts knowing that you're hurting people that like, that's one of the worst parts, right? Like that people really want to help and they mm-hmm. can't. And you're like, and they try and you make them feel bad when they can't. Yeah. Sure. It's a uh, hard on the parents too. Like we were talking earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, shall we move on to chapter 11? Rem- reminder that uh crone poops on grief. Yeah. If that makes you take that happier grief. A- after this. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to just note that uh, Anda Salon is also ruminating about how, oh, he's found this river. And people told him that it was kind of like Dorsan Rill, I mean, that's what it's called, um, mm. from Carcanus. And he looks at it and he's like, that's nothing. <laughs> that's not a pale <laughs> shadow. So he actually does have an idealized past that is in many ways true. <laughs> because 
this river isn't Dorsen Rill, nothing's going to be like Dorsen Rill. Um, nothing's going to compare to its majesty, and that's gone forever for him. Um, and so I think that's a nice counterpoint. The beginning of um, the chapter, or maybe it was like the previous chapter, where um, there was something about expectations. Like, expectation is the ori curse of humanity, which, I mean, Endosalon isn't human, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. Um, one can listen to words and see them as the unfolding of a petal, or indeed the very opposite, each word bend, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's just like, you can't help but have expectations, mm-hmm. even though you may know that your expectations are going to be wrong. And Animander had already told Endosalon, like, it's not going to be what you think it is when you mm-hmm. get to the river. But I think he also said that you're still going to draw strength from it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, hope springs eternal, which is uh, horrible <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> you just can't stop it. 11. Um, chapter 11. Yeah. Chapter 11. Harlow gives his friend new legs. Torvald meets some interesting new co-workers. Curl's bar has some trouble with rowdy patrons. Boy, how are they going to get out of this financial nightmare? I have a feeling that there's something that Janath wants to talk about. Yeah, um, the uh, the the thing the thing with the I forget if it was in this conversation or the other, so I saved it for this one. But the uh, t- the Talon Emas guy that now has M lava legs uh, <laughs> was like. Um, he he and Harlow. I forget who brought it up. I think it was Harlow brought up that there was this like building down there that um has been there since before the Talon, and even Raced, as old as Raced is, didn't know what it was. And yeah, that's not what I was expecting. I I was just uh kind of uh, what did you what were you expecting? I was expecting you to bring up the uh the conversation between whether it's worse to kill someone or to increase the price of bread. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I honestly, if you didn't say that, uh, would have forgotten that that was in this chapter and not brought that up. But yeah, Krupp uh, and Baruch have a conversation. Yeah. Krupp and Baruch discuss political economy. Uh, and um, I mean, yeah, that was an inter- That was a really cool conversation. And I like, uh, I like how Erickson likes to touch on these, uh, on these uh, sort of moral questions that people who uh, talk about or study this stuff in the modern day, uh, you know, um, talk, talk, talk themselves to death on and analyze and all of that. I mean, it was a cool scene, uh, but yeah, no, I was more interested by the nerdy, uh, <laughs> or, uh, like what the, what this building that even raced ancient ass didn't know what it was at the time that he was ruling the, the, empire <laughs> yeah I, I think you said in the in the group chat that it, it like looked it looked to be before cruel sale i think that's i, I think that may be correct i, I was thinking he was a zathani but well, i don't cruel think they sale. built anything that was that big it might also just be like some ancient precursor race that no one has figured out in Malazan yet but uh out of the candidates probably for cruel sales i think that the best candidate right or could chain the, the like Naruk, maybe well the thing is that Raced would know, yeah, Raced might know about the the Assail stuff, because, like, I think they talk about it in this book, but they definitely do in Reaper's Gale. There's, like, the eternal struggle between 
the war between the Jack Hut and the Fork Girl Sale. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, sorry. You said it was Kachain Shamal. Sorry. I, I, yeah, Kachain. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's yeah. that's that might be more likely, especially yeah. given that we're not that far geographically from um, where all the Kachain corpses got resurrected in the in Memories of Ice and stuff. And mm -hmm. I don't know. Just like, that they they were on this world before all the invaders came. Yeah, so, it might be like a buried Skykeep. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And like Raced might not have known about Skykeeps and that would make sense. And maybe he like got taken down before, or at least this IMAS got buried before uh, there was much interaction between the IMAS and the in the Kachain. Something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, the, the, also the conversation that um, they had about the Fork Rule versus the Jagat, that was really interesting in my opinion. Um, how the Fork Rule Sale, like they were... Jack could have a problem with arrogance, let's say. But oh yeah, uh, Forkless Sale, like they think in binaries and they think in incredibly rigid terms, and they they are the they just hold ones. an intellectual arrogance <laughs> that's not seen by anyone else in the lesson. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them so dangerous because they're also very powerful physically. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um, a little bit of uh, a little bit of setup, let's say. Pay attention to the Forkle of Sale bits, Panda. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. I'll not skim them. We got Ren Renegade uh, Segula. Yeah! Mad run, oh, bad run. <laughs> I like the conversation and their uh, con uh, their outfits. Like, what and the their... heck is going <laughs> on? And the divination dice, as if we didn't have enough divination systems. You got tiles, <laughs> dice... And Cards. decks of dragons, yeah. yeah. Are they are these people gonna be like meaningful at all to the end of the this main series? To the main series? No. Yeah. At the end of the book, yes. Oh. Oh. Okay, fine. I'll pay more attention. Yeah, I feel like I should I should probably tell you, Panda, that uh this book is a series climax in its own right. Okay. So just just keep that in mind as you're reading. Okay. I enjoyed the segment where uh, Torvald sneaks into the house and talks to the uh, the lady of the house. And she's, yeah. yeah. And she's like, "I've been watching you this whole time." Yeah. The the angle on the the window faces the exact place that you're you were sneaking up from. Yeah. So I saw you just doing the entire thing. Uh, hilarious. <laughs> and also, <laughs> are, are your are, are Scorch and Left are they as incompetent as they seem? Torvald's like, "Yeah, but you don't really know them, right? Like they're." They're super uh -huh. confident when you get down to it. And she's like, boy, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can leave by the front door, by the way. <laughs> I love how they hired them because they're incompetent. And he's like, really? Underneath it all, they're, they, they'll they surprise you. And she's like, um, don't, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they want incompetent guards? Hmm. Because this was a and d setup. <laughs> right like this is this is like the classic thing like there's this shifty like like the, the players get to this location and there's this they, they want to for some reason want to find out what's in the mansion like the gm throws in like oh there's this mysterious castellan that greets you when he's there and then like later like some sketchy figures that are apparently legendary fighters um are brought in as well and oh, who's the mystery mistress of the house now? Oh, she's super mysterious. Like totally an organic setup, it feels. Mm -hmm. Um, 
My uh, one of my favorite passages in the whole book of the Fallen is in this uh, chapter, but it's like a page and a half long, so I'm not going to read it. But the opening with Krupp narrating about like the there's no pure um, imagination or whatever than a than a or there's no, there's no pure artist than a child that's free to imagine, and he like talks about like how there's you know, like their 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 sticks that you would just step over and not even think of, or like the walls of a fortress, and like you know, he was like going into like all the, all the like just like the beauty of a of of a, a child being free to unleash their imagination and like kind of explore that fantasy world in their mind, and I was, I just fucking love it. Like it's mm-hmm. like one of my favorite one of my favorite passages. Snell does that too. Yeah. <laughs> The dragons and, will be witnesses. Yeah, like it's also just like an interesting artistic point because, oh, since the children don't know that there are these rules of storytelling that you need to follow, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They can be so much more magical. So um, he conti- he continues to to rebuff criticisms of his writing style through Krupp's narration, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, the whole thing's just an apology for the Carcanus trilogy, which he hasn't even written yet. Carcanus. Oh, um, <laughs> Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I listened to Niffle Rog's uh, apology for the Carcanus trilogy the other day. And Doesn't need an apology. It's it's pretty much it's pretty much the same the same thing as Krep's as what Krep's saying about a child's imagination. <laughs> it's it's a great a great video. Um, shall we talk about the assault on Curls Bar? Are you ready for that? Oh. And are you, have you emotionally recovered? Probably not. But we can talk about it. Fisher gave a good account of himself. Yeah. Mallet died. Blue Pearl died. So many people died. Blue Pearl ignored the omens that Krull was trying to send. There was that ghost in the cellar when he was like picking up the cask. It's like, oh, I smell a blade or something. Which blade? Was there like a specific blade? Uh, That's important for something else. No. Okay. Never mind. Mallet obviously hits harder than Blue Pearl because Blue Pearl was just like a gag in yeah. his eyes. And yeah. Yeah, Mallet what was. What um... Kick open the gate, Whiskey Jack? Yeah. Oh. Died with a grin. Yeah. Mallet, like, he's like one of the most caring characters in the series, right? But oh, also, so I was a bit selfish as well because Mallet is so useful. I'm like, this yeah. crew, like, literally made so much use of Mallet. And now he's gone, and I'm like, yeah. oh. really alive because of Mallet. Um, like, um, I, I, one of the characters is Barathol. Is like, yeah, I'll be fine once Mallet gets to me. And then Picker's like, sorry, bud. Yeah, no, we don't have Mallet anymore. And Mallet uh, and Barathol and Shower come and save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mallet is uh, potentially the reason why uh, Absalar has survived up to this point mm. because he strengthened uh, the the Wax Witches spirit trying to like keep Absalar's psyche together uh in gardens of the moon he also saved uh ganos and cole yeah a big player but in a very quiet way yep yep also saved merilio in this book (sighs) he'll be missed yeah that um hmm i can see where Steve got this inspiration from from a certain Steven Spielberg movie. Huh? That's uh, I, I, okay. Ryan. It's it's Saving Private Ryan. 
But oh. <laughs> I see. Yeah. I need to watch that movie again. Medic dies, I don't know I if assume. I can yes. like emotionally go through that again. <laughs> that was really hard on you, eh? I recently yeah. watched the Fablemans. It was pretty good. Yeah. The it'll come as no surprise that like when I read this, I'm I'm of course most worried about like Blend and Picker. <laughs> but <laughs> hey, it's Blend also, survived. Think, Blend survived. Yeah, they both survived. She was badass. She yeah. Was, oh, I love Blend so much. The it's very interesting to me that this entire section, this entire book, um, the bridge burners know that this is coming, right? They yeah. know. And yet they're taken completely off guard, yeah. which is like they're old soldiers. <laughs> as, as much as we want them to be these badasses that are kind of unstoppable, like they go down pretty easily at the start of this. I mean, they, they give good account of themselves, obviously. Yeah. And they, they obviously killed all their attackers. But at the same time, like they they're caught with their pants down. And that feels like really, really bad. Right. Well, like Kroll's bar felt like a safe place for them. So they they were less diligent and alert. But like when we saw, you know, in book one of this book where they they got away from the assassins. Right. And they they Killed surprised them. them. Yeah. So it was kind of. I mean, uh, it was a bit unexpected for me to see this happen. I, I think, um, yeah, like it's interesting that they did that they weren't more on guard, but like, I, maybe part of that was them just being like, "Well, we can't just be like hyper vigilant at all times." So, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like we're retired. Like this is not our job anymore. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't really, like, this is going to sound callous. I don't really, I'm not as interested in the chalice plotline. <laughs> no one is, right? No one. I like it. it. Is, I like it. <laughs> I like Crocus. I like chalice. I mean, it's sad what she, like, the situation she's in. Um, it's just I'm so much more interested in the other parts. Yeah, fair. And, oh, uh. The coalition between Gorlas Fidicas and his friends. Well, that sounds like the first and second triumvirate of Rome. <laughs> Finger guns at the screen. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm done with them. Done yeah, they're just not interesting. Like, mm-hmm. um in the Reaper's Gale episodes, uh Janeth, you said that like the Chancellor and the leader of the Patriots, they were just boring, like dumb assholes. Oh. <laughs> That's like exactly how I feel about Gorlis Viticus and all of these Darugistan nobility. Like none of them are interesting at all. They don't have any cool thoughts. They're just boring assholes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. Like and, and honestly, with the Patriotists, towards the end, it got better because once <laughs> they had like a foil, like arguing against them, the stuff the foils had to say were interesting. Like yeah. the, the dialogue was interesting, you know. Like, is anybody on the side of like rich aristocracy these days? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are actual fascists in the world, so like the patriotists are still relevant. But Gorlis Viticus, like he's what? he's just a rich noble. That's an asshole. That's that's all he is. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no interesting nuance to his dialogue or philosophy. That you have to argue against. It's just like, no, this is this is something that's been effectively disproven. 
Next chapter. Uh, yeah, sure. Chapter 12. Crone tells Endus Salon to get back home. Salinda is captured on her way back to the Redeemer, Seer Domans shortly after. Spinak Durav is given his assignment by Anamander. Nemander and Aranatha capture the Dying God as Seerdomen defends the Redeemer. My favorite part of this chapter is Karsa and Traveler being bros. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're very bro-y, and their conversations yeah. are really fun. And their whole dynamic is just uh, slightly unexpected, but really fun. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing about Bellardin being the Dying God, or whatever. <laughs> oh, right, like it's... It's like totally set up. It was like weird. It was confusing. Yeah. I thought it was very exciting. And the build up to it was exciting. It's like, Bellardin? Part of it. Okay. The, right, the, the idea that it's Bellardin is just kind of, I, I don't care. Yeah. But it should have been Hairlock. It was creepy <laughs> as hell. And Hairlock was involved. They just got puppets everywhere. The, the imagery was fantastic. Uh, I, I really yeah. enjoyed the the spiritual battle that uh, the priestess and Seer Doman were going through, and the mm. interacting with uh, Itkovian as well. So, like, all of that was really cool. And I agree. Like, I told you last episode. Like, I just I don't care who the dying god is, and part of that is me knowing who the dying god <laughs> uh, is. Yeah. Okay. But outside of that, I thought it was really cool. I agree with you. I I I really do agree with you. Like everything leading up and surrounding it was. That was really interesting. That reveal was just so wow. anticlimactic. <laughs> so, and I was like, also oh, how? I th- okay. So I think that if we, if anybody had cared at all about Bellardin, then it would have been very good. No one cares about Bellardin because he wasn't really a character. But thematically speaking, he is a good choice for the themes of the book, because everybody is dealing with people turning away from them. Harlow, yeah. his mother turned away from him. The Teist, their mother turned away from them. Mm-hmm. Seerdomen turned away from the Redeemer. You see what I'm saying? Like, Crocus turned away from Solara. Everybody is dealing with the rejection of somebody. And Bellardin was kind of rejected by Night- Nightchill, like turned aside and shunted out. Um, mm. So as a continuation on that theme, he works really well. Uh, here, and you have your hand up. Go hey, ahead. Earlier you said Bellardin was not a character. I disagree. I thought he was uh, pretty... For the amount of t- time that he had on page in Gardens of the Moon, he was actually quite interesting. Second of all, I think it works for this book because a large of this part of this book is about grief, yeah? Mm-hmm. I think Bellardin, uh, I guess, after uh, Fat Lady... Tattersale? Uh, after Tattersale is the first person we've seen that really experiences a, a deep grief and okay. so it works there yeah yeah so yeah like again like thematically this works but like at at this point in the series like is it does if you don't know a, that it's coming he had like a do you deep. care about Berlardin? yeah he like, had to dig really deep to pull this one out yes agreed so like if this if this took place like after gardens of the moon like if the next book was gardens of the moon and then Berlardin shows up then i think that people would care more but it's been seven <laughs> it's been seven books and thousands of pages. And also we had this whole thing with, you know, Nightchill, Tattersail, Bellardin, and Silver Fox. And I was like, okay, cool. They're gone now. They're done. And then this happens. I'm like, what? So is it that like Nightchill ejected Bellardin from Silver Fox or something? 
uh, they said they 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 rejected this part of uh, Bellardin, and he found Ter- Hairlock at the Abyss, and then tried to imitate his puppeting okay. abilities. And so I think actually a part of him is still probably a part of Silver Fox, but I guess she didn't like this bit, and he was tossed aside and fell into grief and hatred. I see. And... Yeah, I just it, it yeah, was something. <laughs> I think I I, I agree. <laughs> Aranatha, um, there's something more to her. Yeah. I love Aranatha in this. <laughs> I don't know what. We're, we haven't talked about uh, the Redeemer at all um, in this chapter. So he gets Sierra Doman to defend him um, from Selind, who just wants answers, right? She was going there to force answers out of him, and then she got uh, essentially raped, right? Like, this is the, the, the point where they force the Salmon Kellic into her. That's actually one of the more painful moments in the series for me. Because it's, like, such a v- profound violation. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, in all, in all the ways. Because, like, I think it's implied later that um, Gadrithin rapes her. Mm-hmm. Well, it was... I must have missed that. Yeah, I guess yeah, it is kind of addiction a... is one of the worst things you could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it is kind of a rape because she wasn't of the right mind. Like she was definitely under the influence. Yeah, yeah, and, and like the, the salmon Kellic, like it changes who you are. Like this, <laughs> it's it's like more of a profound drug than like anything that we have. I think. But like, just imagine like holding someone down and injecting heroin into their veins and like yeah. making them a heroin addict. Like, it's worse than that. Uh, people so, do do that. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, like, it's 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 really, really, really hard to read. Yeah, uh, for me, I at agree. Least. Um, and then, like, yeah, later, like, Sierra Doman has to contest with her corrupted impulses, um, which is also really hard because she she has a right to be pissed at the redeemer i think mm-hmm. um and and to get the answers from him that he doesn't have right like he's <laughs> all i do is i redeem people what do you want from me <laughs> exactly like and he knows he is fully aware of the problems with his with the cult that's forming around him but because of his own nature he can't do anything about it and mm-hmm. part of that is because people are forcing these beliefs onto him yeah. So he needs Seer Domen. And Seer Domen, like, tells him, like, if you had been anything other than, like, completely humble right now, then I wouldn't have, I would have just told you to screw off. But, you know, because you have a little bit of humility, I'm going to do my best to defend you. And he does, uh, which is really nice. There was a lot of commentary on organized religion in the section. (laughs) A lot. Yep. I, I, everything surrounding the dying god and the the redeemer and even anime and a rake to a certain extent is about organized religion yep yeah and Slind was thinking the cult that's going to form around here it needs a doctrine and it needs some organization but the priests are going to recognize that there is something fundamentally cynical about this and they're going to become cynical themselves and i can enforce standards for like a generation but after that, there's there's nothing that can be done, right? Like eventually, the priests are going to realize this, and that's going to leave the religion rotten from the inside out. And oh boy, that that feels uh, very burdened 
Let's just say. It's definitely something that I struggle with quite a bit. Yeah. Me too. Sorry, one more thing about the religion part is there was this line. Um, I can't remember who said it or thought it, but it's, were prayers nothing more than attempted bargains, a pathetic assertion of some kind of reciprocity. And I'm just like, yeah. Oftentimes when people are praying, they're asking for things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you, ha- you see this all the time in like media for sure, right? Like in... Like an atheist. That's the only thing that ever. Like, that's the only time anyone ever prays in media. I'd say ninety nine percent of cases is like, oh please absolutely. God, ask. Yep. Yeah. I just, and, I uh, I don't like that. It really seems yeah. cynical to me. <laughs> and, and yeah, the tension between give and take is also explored a lot in these. Like the seven calic is a really good metaphor for it, mm-hmm. um, because you can also read seven calic as a metaphor for religious zealotry, right? Like you 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 put all of your cares and all of your worries onto this thing. Yeah. This, this idea or deity that you're worshiping and then you don't worship, worry about anything else. You just, you just try and follow the doctrine and that's it. And there's a lot of ecstasy that can be found in religious service. Yep. Right. Like no one would disagree with that. Um, and, and it can lead you to do some horrible things as, as we've seen throughout history and through this series. What is it? I think, uh, it's, kind of tangentially related yoko taro once said that the only uh, it doesn't take a crazy person to murder someone it just takes somebody who thinks that they are right mm-hmm. that's oh. that's a good that's a good one yeah yoko taro is a pretty smart dude yeah like they, they, there's a lot of there's like even smart people fall for this right like not that he was falling for anything but like these are <laughs> these are not new problems and yet like we have not come anywhere close to solving them as a species I don't think it's going to be solved. I think it's part of it is just human nature. Yeah, like short of like biohack, like profound biohacking, which we're not close to as far as I know. But like short of someone like going into the human brain and changing its nature, like these are things that we're just going to have to deal with and reconcile and find a way to like be good to each other, right? Speaking of being good to each other, mm -hmm. clip is really the worst. He is. These right? people they... went through so much for him. And he just treats him terribly. He's, he wakes up and he's, he's just like, he's right back to the same. Yep. Yeah. Him and Snell would actually be good friends, I think. Well, they'd probably kill each other, but <laughs> they're kindred spirits. That was my last I like Theodome's thoughts about uh, soldiers who fought in an unjust war. Mm. And it really, I think in at the end of World War II, I'm not going to go into what a just war and an unjust war is, if there is such a thing. But uh, at the end of World War II, I think the people there at least felt that they accomplished something, some good, mm-hmm. at least from the Allies' perspective, whether that just be from propaganda or whatnot. Like, I think it'd be hard to argue against it in certain circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. But then, uh, especially most modern wars, people just come after feeling hatred for themselves, feeling jaded feeling that they didn't actually accomplish anything good and were just simply uh, pawns to be used by more powerful peoples and what that could do to an individual's psyche. I just thought it was pretty uh, profound. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like at the end of world war two, they could, they could be like, well, we stopped the Holocaust or we stopped 
all that's coming right. after the fact too. It's not Absolutely. like they're like, oh, let, let's yeah. start, let's fight the Holocaust or let's stop the the the, the rape of Mount King or whatever. Yeah, or Unit Seven Three One or you know all all these like. When at the war, beginning, war. it's really just, let's protect British uh, mm-hmm. investments overseas. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like yeah, the concept of just and just wars is a really interesting one, and definitely in modern day, it's very hard to see any real conflicts where it's you could you could argue that's a just war should we get to listener questions yes um we answered some of these um but sun gamer also asked what we think of namander his self-doubt is intense but is he right about himself (laughs) i mean (laughs) we're we're told by the people around him that he's not right like all of the heists that are following him think well namander is the exception to the rules namander is the exceptional ruler um i think kedinvis or desra i don't remember which um is thinking that like if for people there are two relationships with power basically there's like the bullies and then there's the victims maybe i'm butchering this um but very occasionally there's a third person who has power and sometimes uses it but isn't a bully who doesn't relish having power mm. over others. And that's not a matter. reluctant ruler. Yeah. A philosopher king, if you will. <laughs> They're following because they believe in him and he's filled with self-doubt. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of parallels to exactly how Anamander's treated, except we're actually given the insight into Anamander's mind. Mm-hmm. Like when Endus is talking to Anamander, he's just like, Oh my God, you know, everything, you know, this, you know, that you're more forgiving than me. Uh, I, I just see Anamander in Anamander mm-hmm. and the people around him put absolute faith in him while inside he's just self-doubting. And I think self-doubt is just a really important thing for a leader. Well, <laughs> as far as the philosopher king goes, that's what Plato said the criteria was. You have to elect someone who doesn't want to lead. Yeah. Um, Namander doesn't want to lead. Anamander definitely doesn't want to lead. Um I also really like the scene where Seer Doman, no, sorry, not Seer Doman, Spinnock is getting his assignment from Anamander, and he's thinking to himself, I could say that I need to rescue Selend right now. Mm-hmm. And then Anamander would say, of course, my friend, you have to do this for love. I will take this burden upon myself, and you, you, you need to go do this. And then Spinnock, he did, makes a conscious decision not to, because... He knows that whatever Animander is doing is the right thing, or he thinks that's what. It, it, he he knows Animander needs him, and he knows at a drop of a hat, Animander would do the same thing for him. Yes, yeah. and that's what he wants. That's probably why Spinnock and the other Tyst follow Animander so through everything, right? Like through their millennia-long ennui, and the fact that they they themselves can't see a point in anything they're doing. Um, it's because like Animander, like he he wouldn't ask them to do something that they wouldn't do themselves, and he would do anything for them. I have nothing more to add to that. Jingles90 says, what do you think Erickson means by the title of this book, Cold-Eyed Virtues? How does that theme play out in these chapters? It's a really good question. <laughs> I don't know if I have I'm smart idea. enough to answer. Go ahead. I'm probably wrong, but I, I think it's referring to the mostly hands-off approach that the Tai Standee uh, take in governance. Hmm. Uh, so 
it ends in chapter 11 or chapter 12 of Anomander talking with Solana and mm-hmm. they recognize everything that's happening. He, he sees what's yeah. happening. He's not indifferent, but he, he lets it happen. Uh, and I get the feeling that, especially because and, uh, Sierra Doman is basically doing all of the vigilante justice in this scene, <laughs> even though that the Andy and I get the feeling that Anamander knows what's going on, yet not doing anything about it, because he sees uh, self-governance or uh, freedom or liberty or whatever you want to say as a virtue. I'm probably wrong, but... Mm. Yeah, he's giving... Seer Doman says that... In large part, he's doing this because he wants to prove to the Andy that occasionally humans can clean up their own messes. And Anamander, in some part, is giving them the room to grow into their own because he knows that he's like, that this is not forever, right? Like the the citizens are not always going to have a dragon literally watching over them. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's giving them space to grow. Cool diet virtues, I, I think that's also a deliberate juxtaposition because mm-hmm. like n- none of these people are cold inherently. Like they're all feeling very deeply about what's happening. And while it may appear to others that they're being cold about it, um, it it's actually <laughs> it's actually kind of the reverse. They care so much <laughs> that they realize the reasons mm-hmm. why they can't just do everything themselves like like animander i guess that's kind of like how parents like as you watch your kids grow um like you have to let them make their own mistakes let them make their decisions and you know for example if like a child falls and cries right um you know there's like a philosophy of parenting where it's like don't coddle the child um, instead, like help the child get back up and like, you know, let them feel that pain because that does help them grow. And then they learn to not do that again. Um, so on the outside, it could seem pretty, you know, Alice. cold, mm-hmm. but instead it's actually a gift. Yeah. And at the same time, in the in the camp of the Redeemer, we see what's happening. Yeah like children are being raped like celine thinks that like every, all the women all the children mm-hmm. besides her because she's a child of the dead seed they've all been exploited and abused and yet nothing's been done and like we can talk about how like this is this is a virtue by animander but at the same time like that doesn't help these these people right right so there's a very strong tension there mm-hmm. and it's ameliorated in some part because animander is obviously not an omnipotent god <laughs> so he can't be expected to solve everything but like this does also introduce um one of the so-called theodicies the problem of evil right like why does animander could stop this at any time we th- we hear that he knows everything that's going on why does he let it happen mm-hmm. and that people have to deal with this. I mean, that's a question that Lady Sweden asks, like with Rake and Crow knowing and seeing a lot, why don't they do something about the dying God? The Andy mm-hmm. take a lot of responsibility on themselves. Why not the dying God? I mean, we kind of answer that already. And I, I also think it's, um, it goes back to the last episode where we discuss where like the, 
the pilgrims um, of the Redeemer wanted Salon, the, the high priestess, to go to Seer Doman and ask him to help take care of the stupid dude. I don't, Gadrithin, whatever. Yeah, Gadrithin, or I don't know what. Yeah, evil man. Evil <laughs> man. Um, and Salon's like, why can't you do something about it yourself? And so that's kind of also the theme of like, sure, somebody can come in and save you, or you can also save yourself. Hopefully. Well, at least try. Yeah. Some, some, yeah. Yeah. Um, like a very nitpicky technical thing. <laughs> at, mm-hmm. at, near the beginning of this book, we're told that Solana is watching and she sees everything, even though she's statuesque. At one point, one of the people in the Cult of Redeemer, one of the evil guys, uh, looks up to the dragon and is like, oh, that's a stupid statue. And then it goes to Solana's perspective and is like, oh, but Solana saw everything and that if he had known her cold-eyed regard was on him, then he wouldn't have done this. To me, that feels like a little bit of clunky writing. I feel (laughs) like Steve could have just left it like he looked at the dragon and thought what a stupid statue she was and then had the had the scene with Anamander restraining Solana later. Mm. Um, so there we go. A little bit of uh, criticism of the literary technique. <laughs> we can call ourselves a high brow podcast now. <laughs> you don't think my Taylor Swift commentary made oh, us sorry. high No, I'm so sorry. That was absolutely, Come on. That was absolutely actually a good point. <laughs> I'm kidding. And I'm not. <laughs> it was a good thing to bring up. I agree. Uh, are you enjoying it? I'm going to say yes. I think, like, I just really want to know what happens in the plot. And I mm. want more time with the characters that I enjoy. But, I mean, yeah, there are parts where I'm just like, okay, let me just, you know, move it along. Um, but, I mean, overall, like, I don't hate it. I don't regret reading it. I just want to know what happens. Yeah. The the climax of this book is really good. (laughs) I'm waiting. Okay. That concludes this episode. If you want to join the read-along and or contribute listener questions, check us out in the Legitarium's Discord. You can find us the link on legitarium.com. Also follow us on Twitter at Green Team Pod for updates and fun times. Check out the Legitarium podcast for Wheel of Time, Cosmere, Lord of the Rings content, and so much more. Thank you to our panelists, Ashman, Janath as a boy, and Befettle Penna. I'm here a fan. Until next time. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Oh my goodness.